Father, we thank you again for your word and for what you have done in the Lord Jesus. And we echo that prayer that you would give us such grace, not just in this hour, but throughout our lives, so that with the meek and lowly we might dwell on high with you. And Lord, I pray that the grace would be such that that with us there would be the elect from all nations and that you would give us the unspeakable joy of proclaiming this good news to them that those who are yet to hear the gospel might know the glory of the Lord Jesus and the reconciliation that he achieved. We pray that you would use Travis and Zane and Garrett and Lee, particularly to that end, Lord, but others also who are here, whose hearts you are stirring. Lord, we pray that you would open the way for them to go. But all of us, Father, make us faithful to have salty lips that proclaim the gospel, beautiful feet who bring the good news that sinners might be reconciled. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so thankful for Garrett and Lee Milner. You know, sometimes you have the feeling of being around people who are just better than you are. Praise God for that. Um, and it, it's a wonderful thing to be around people who, who know Proverbs 27.2 and who obey it. And, and so these are people who, who understand that they need to let another praise them and not their own lips. And, and with Garrett, that's what you're dealing with. So if you want information on Garrett, you don't go to him, you go to Lee, and she'll give you the goods. And um, she reminded me that when Garrett graduated, he was voted uh, the outstanding student by the faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he was voted the outstanding seminarian by the student body. And that, that doesn't happen very often, and it's one of those occasions where, as a member of that faculty that cast one of those votes, that's a vote you never regret. So I just praise God for Garrett and Lee, and I praise the Lord for the way that he has taken hold of their hearts and the way that he has gripped them. Lee related to me that the first time they ever really hung out together, uh, they discussed the way that each had spent the previous summer overseas doing Great Commission work. And she related how as they, as they planned to get married, they, they got married planning to join the International Service Corps of the International Mission Board. So they, they got married planning to go to the mission field together. This is a devoted couple. And I'm thankful that the Lord first detoured them here through Louisville so that they could study at Southern, so that we could have them with us here for a time. Um, Praise God for Chris Smith. Chris was working in the admissions office, and he told Lee, who got a job there early uh, on their arrival here, uh, about Kenwood and about the things that Matt Pierce and others were doing uh, with the international outreach. And um, Garrett and Lee came here and joined in that work, and they were strong in that ministry until little Gideon came into the picture. And um, I want to relate a little bit of that story uh, because it's relevant to their connection here at Kenwood. So their son Gideon 
was due to be born at the end of December of 2013. And Lee started having difficulties and was hospitalized in September of 2013, so several months early. And then Gideon was born um, at 30 weeks on October the 19th of 2013. And uh, it just worked out that Jill and I were in the hospital for Isaiah's birth. He was born the previous day, October 18th. And and Garrett called me, and we came over, and we learned that, that Gideon had gone at least five minutes with no breathing and no heartbeat. And Lee related to me that the nursing staff, they were doing various things in the preparation of this child's birth to prepare for a child that was not going to make it. Nobody, none of the nursing staff expected this little boy to live, but... Praise God, they resuscitated him, and, and when he lived, everybody there at the hospital regarded him as a miracle baby, and that kid is perfectly fine today. I mean, you'll see him probably at potluck, running around, acting like any other two-and-a-half-year-old child. And, and, and praise God for the body here at Kenwood Baptist Church. The, the, the time throughout the, the period in which Lee was hospitalized from September until um, Gideon's birth, and then, and then after um, his birth and, and the difficulties that they, they went through there, um, this body uh, loved them and cared for them, particularly the ladies, provided for them. And, and so I want to just publicly thank God for this congregation and for the way that they, they loved this family. And, and because of all of that, we have this enormous privilege to, to be their sending church. They're, even though they're from Texas, even though their families are down in uh, Katy and the Fort Worth area, uh, they, they want to be located and sent out from us here at Kenwood. And that is just a tremendous privilege of ours and a stewardship that we have that we want to, to maintain and, and um, stay connected with them across the years. So it is an enormous honor for me and for us today to ordain Garrett to this great work. What we're ordaining you to, Garrett, has been well described by Charles Spurgeon when he described the role of the pastor. He said that a pastor's job is this, to face the enemies of the truth, to defend the bulwarks of the faith, to rule well in the house of God, to comfort all that mourn, to edify the saints, to guide the perplexed, to bear with the froward, I won't mention any names, to win and nurse, so that should have gotten a laugh, because there are some froward people, but we're not going to point them out, to win and nurse souls, all these and a thousand other works beside are not for a feeble mind or a ready to halt, but are reserved for great heart, whom the Lord has made strong for himself. Seek then strength from the strong one, wisdom from the wise one, in fact, all from the God of all. This is a, a different day. Um, it was pointed out to me last week that we've been in the Psalms for a whole year, but we're departing from the Psalms today, and we're going to look at First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I would invite you to turn there with me. This is a sacred day that is made holy by the Word of God and this high calling to which Garrett Milner is being set apart this day. This is a day that has eternal roots 
in the purposes of God. This is a day that will bear fruit forever because Jesus will save those whom he has purchased with his own blood. So this is a day in which we consecrate Garrett Milner for the task of church planning with the International Mission Board. But we're not making him a pastor. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. That that passage that we read in Acts 18, uh, Paul says to those guys, he refers to the church in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So we are recognizing today that the Holy Spirit has prepared and equipped uh, Garrett Milner to be an overseer. And today we're committing him to the Lord and committing ourselves to pray for him and the work before him. So I want to thank you, Garrett, for this unique privilege that I have, and, and I want to praise God for the encouragement that all of this represents. God's name is at stake here at Kenwood Baptist Church and in the International Mission Board, and God's glory on the field is the particular responsibility of those who go to those lands. And so, again, I want to quote Spurgeon, because this calls for godliness, this task that's before you. And Spurgeon said this. He said, it is not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. The word of God, this passage, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11, speaks to our need. Because in this passage, you've got an outline in your bulletin, What we're going to see is that in verses 1 through 4, Peter speaks of Christ-likeness for shepherds, for pastors. And then, after that, in verses 5 through 7, he speaks of Christ-likeness for churches, for the congregation. And then he speaks to all of us on resisting the devil and concludes with a promise and a doxology. So, Garrett, as you are ordained to plant churches, we are calling you to Christ-likeness. What we're doing is recognizing and exulting in the fact that God's church is his plan for evangelism and discipleship. And, and today we are collectively affirming that the task of international missions is the task of cross-cultural church planting. And so, Kenwood, we are sending out a gift from the one who ascended and descended, a pastor-teacher, and and this body also today is being called to Christ-likeness, both in the way that we relate to Garrett and in the way that we relate to all of our pastors. So let's look together at Christ-likeness for pastors first in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Every time I read this, I am just stunned that Peter would write this way. This is the guy who was probably, I mean, John was the beloved disciple, but Peter was the guy that made the confession. Peter was the guy that Jesus said the words to, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter was the leader of the apostolic band. He's the guy that stood up to speak on the day of Pentecost. And look at how he talks here in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder. All the things he could have said. As the leader of the apostolic band. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus himself. As the one to whom he said, you are Peter. And he doesn't say any of that stuff. 
He regards himself as a fellow elder. That is humility that is in Peter's heart as a result of God's grace in his life. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And this is really significant for Peter. It's going to come into some motivational words that he speaks later. But let me, let me quickly uh, take you through several things he says about the glory that is to be revealed throughout this book. So back in 1 Peter chapter 1, he referred in verse 7 to the way that, that our faith, its tested genuineness, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he urges the, the members of the churches to, to gird up the loins of their mind and to be sober-minded and set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in uh, chapter uh, 4, in verse 5, he, he speaks of the way that those who persecute Christians will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then down in verse 13, he, he tells Christians to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter is identifying himself three ways here in 1 Peter 5.1. He's, number one, a fellow elder. Number two, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw Christ crucified. And then the third thing that he says about himself is that he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's a future glory that yet awaits us. And that future glory is, is massive in Peter's mind in terms of motivation, as we've already seen and as we will see as we continue through the passage. So he identifies himself this way in verse 1. And then he gives one command in verse, verses 2 and 3 to the elders. And then he tells the elders how to do this. So the one command is there at the beginning of verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. That's the command. And if we ask, how are we supposed to do that? He says, exercising oversight, and then he says several more things. But before we look further at that, let me just draw your attention to the way that he says, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Look back at chapter 2. Verse 25, where Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the shepherd and overseer. And Peter is saying to pastors, Shepherd, exercising oversight. It's as though Peter is saying to pastors, Be like Christ. This, this is why this, I'm saying this whole section, verses 1 through 4 here, is about Christ-likeness for pastors, because what we're doing is representing Jesus to the congregation. So, Garrett, the churches that you go to plant and the people to whom you go to proclaim the gospel and the Christians that you will, you will meet there and, and, and join in the work with, this is God's flock. Shepherd the flock of God. It's dangerous for us sometimes to start to feel concerned for people in general 
while we feel a kind of distaste for the particular people that are close to us, or maybe even the particular people that God gives to us in a congregation. This is the flock of God, and these are the people that you're called to shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The people near us are the ones to whom we're to give our hearts. They're the ones to whom we're to give our attention. And this this whole metaphor of shepherding, it implies that we need to know where people are because this is what a shepherd does. A shepherd needs to know where the sheep are, and he needs to know where they're inclined to graze, and he needs to know where good pasture is going to be found. He needs to know the different ways that particular sheep might be inclined to wander away from the rest of the flock, and he needs to know the dangers, the, the wild beasts, the, the wolvish false teachers that would endanger the sheep of this flock. And so how do we do this? How do we shepherd the flock of God that is among us? Well, Peter tells us, he says, exercising oversight. And that idea of oversight indicates that you do need to, you need to somehow get up where you can see everybody. You need to be able to account for everybody. You need to know where people are. And so this is what we're called to. We're called to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, exercising oversight, and then there are explicit instructions about how to do this, and they're sort of like Paul's put-off, put-on instructions, because what Peter's going to give us here are are three not-this-way-but-rather-this-other-way kinds of statements. And so he says, first, there in verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly. And, and, and again, this is Christ-likeness, because the Lord Jesus, he wasn't dragged, resisting the whole way when he was taken to the cross. No, he carried the cross there himself, and, and he willingly laid down his life of his own accord. He even said, nobody's taking my life from me. I am laying it down of my own accord. One of the reasons it's such a joy to, to, to have this opportunity to preach at an occasion like this is because... I know that you're not doing this under compulsion, but willingly. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't hold it over our heads that he has done this for us. He, he willingly gave himself, and this is the way that we're called to lay down our lives for the sheep. The second way there is not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not for shameful gain. We're not, we're not called to do this for money. And, and we're not called, so the danger that faces people who fall into this trap is they begin to, to recognize that if I'm successful and if I gather a large crowd, there are ways that that crowd can be put to use for my reputation or even for my financial gain. And it may seem like a remote danger, but all you have to do is look around and know the way, see the way that people have fallen into it, the way that people are using their flat platforms to advance themselves. And, and it was evidently even a possibility in Peter's day. And so he's warning elders against it. This, this ministry is not to be engaged in for shameful gain, but eagerly, this Christ-like laying down of oneself to benefit other people spiritually. 
I think one of the best gauges for how you're doing on this comes down to whether and how you pray for people. People that you want the gospel to go to, people that are under your care. Because prayer is one of those things that has to spring from the heart. And, and, and if somebody is looking to use a crowd, probably it's not going to be on his radar to be thinking about how that crowd needs God's grace. The third way that Peter explains how we're to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, is there in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, that, that, that phrase there, being examples, it, it's, it's, you could translate that somewhat literally, becoming types. And, and I think that what Peter has in mind is the, the, the sequence of actions, the pattern of events seen in the one who fulfilled this pattern of ministry, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is the epitome. He is the type, the one who, who set the example that we're to follow in his footsteps. And so, so pastors are being called to Christ-likeness, not domineering. Jesus said in Mark 10, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Christ-like to pursue the, the, the greatness of service. Our family has the privilege of having um, Daniel and Stacy Knapp as house guests this weekend, and it, it has struck me how much they have served us. They have swept the kitchen. No, we didn't, we didn't ask them to do this. They just served us. They've done the dishes. They've swept the kitchen. It's amazing. It's sort of uh, shaming me. I should be serving more, I feel like, and I, uh, it, it, it's, but it's encouraging, and it's, and it's, it's um, a great reminder of Christ-likeness, and it's a wonderful thing to see God's grace in people's hearts. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We lead by serving. And this is reinforced in that phrase, uh, being examples or becoming types or patterns. Garrett, your responsibility is to live out the pattern of Christ's ministry, giving your life for those whom he has purchased with his own blood. This is a demanding set of instructions. This is a, this is a, a high calling. It's, it's really what we're all called to as Christians. But pastors in particular are to live up to this. I think one of the, one of the most difficult aspects of this, and, and this is something that Dan and I were discussing yesterday, is, is to know for whom am I to lay my, down my life right now? And right now, am I to lay down my life for my wife and children? Or right now, is, is it the time to lay down my life for the needs of this congregation or perhaps this member of the congregation? These are difficult choices that we're often faced with. It's a demanding set of instructions. And this set of instructions, this call to Christ-likeness, it's going to take some serious motivation. 
for us to do this. Motivation that Peter provides there in verse 4. Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, so here's that, that revelation of his glory at the end of all things. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He uses the same term there when he says unfading that he used back in chapter 1 when he said that, that chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, blessed be God who has caused us to be born again to an inheritance in verse 4 that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. There's an unfading crown of glory that will be awarded by the Lord Jesus to those who are going to respond I'm an unworthy servant who who has only done what he was commanded and barely that. But I would invite you to consider that final award ceremony and, and think on it. Consider the chief shepherd himself, the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, the master of the universe, rising to recompense his hosts. This is the one who knows hearts and who judges justly, who always acts in righteousness. And on this occasion, he's going to give rewards. This astonishing verse says that he is going to give this unfading crown of glory to to those who do the simple things that Peter has laid out in verses 1 through 3. It's not complicated, is it? There's one path to that crown. That's the path of taking up your cross and following Christ on the Calvary Road. He's the one who's fulfilled this pattern of necessary suffering before entering into glory. Remember what he said to his disciples? Was it not necessary that the Christ first should suffer and then enter into his glory? And now it's, he's saying through his apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is your path to glory through suffering. Suffering that's not meaningless or random, but suffering that is engaged in for the benefit of other people at the expense of ourselves, that they might know the Lord. I would invite you to ask yourself, what, what's the greatest honor I could imagine? Maybe, maybe something comes to mind like a, an athlete winning the Heisman Trophy or, or perhaps an American soldier receiving the Medal of Honor or or some other such awards ceremony. This, This award, this unfading crown of glory that Christ the King is going to bestow on those who have served him faithfully so far surpasses those other things that the comparison doesn't even seem appropriate to make. The church... And, and, and what you're going to engage in, this is God's cause in the world. This is Christ's own bride. And the work done in the church has eternal ramifications that pertain to all nations. So there is no institution more significant, no agenda more important, no task more urgent, no cause more noble, no message more true, and no office more dependent on the character of those who discharge it. No reward greater than the one that Peter holds out for those who would engage in it here. So Garrett, we are thrilled this morning 
to summon you to Christ-likeness and to commission you for this great work. In verses 5 through 7, we have Christ-likeness for the church. And um, in part, what, what Peter is doing here is now telling the church how to relate to those who are to engage in this pastoral ministry. He says first in verse 5, and, and from all these comments, I think we would say, you know, there's a reason that, that Peter is saying these things. It's like uh, I happen to be, there's, a, there's a, a faculty lounge on the Southern Seminary campus, and there's a, a Keurig coffee, coffee maker in there, and there's a sign next to those little coffee pods that says, do not take coffee pods out of the faculty lounge. And I, and I happened to be in there one day with uh, Randy Stinson, who's the provost of the school, and I sort of pointed to that sign, and he said, all rules and regulations exist because someone was doing it. And so, you know, they're, they're, Peter knows churches. Peter knows churches, and Peter knows people. And he says here in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I think Peter's been around young men. Peter's, Peter's been around young men who haven't endured the, the out, outrageous slings of fortune people who haven't suffered long in the school of hard knocks, people who think more of themselves than they ought. Young, young people tend to think, I'm invincible, I've got the right answer, I know the way that things should go. And so Peter says to the young men first, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And it's not just elders, is it? All of us are inclined to pride. So he calls the whole congregation to embrace humility. There in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. There's always a danger for us to compare someone who goes out from us to the mission field or someone who serves as a pastor over us with other missionaries that we've read about or other people that we've known or what, whatever. There's always a, a danger to compare and there's always a danger to think we know how things ought to go. And we are being urged here to embrace humility in the way that we receive what Garrett reports to us from the field and as a congregation in the way that we receive the leadership and the direction of the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Uh, there is nothing that will make the relationships between us easier and happier than our obedience to this verse. If we relate to one another in humility, it will be a delightful project. We will be, we will be thrilled to interact with one another. And then there's even this very important reason given to us there in verse 5 at the end. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you hear that? God opposes the proud. If there's anything that should drive us from pride, that reality should. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We here at Kenwood, we are a blessed church. And... And we have this great joy of, of commissioning Garrett to this work and sending him out to it. And we want to embrace humility as we do so. 
We don't have all the answers to every question he's going to have. We don't know how he should engage in this great project. And we should not evaluate what he does by some whatever, famous missionary or whatever else we might, we might be tempted to, to measure him by. We want to humble ourselves, suspend judgment, and, and receive what the Lord has given to us. Humility is difficult. Um, all you have to do is look around and see all the pride that's on display all around us, and we ought to, we ought to hear statements like this and think, Lord, help me to be more humble. And, and praise God, Peter is giving us instructions about how to be humble. He gives us at least two there in verse, uh, verses 6 and 7. The first thing he says, if you want to grow in humility, point number one in verse 6, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's saying you need to recognize God's sovereign power. And if God is the one in, that, who is in control, you don't have to be. God is the one who is sovereign over all things. His hand is the mighty hand, and we can humbly embrace our place in his universe. Second, look at what he says there. After, after the, again, a promise of reward, at the proper time he may exalt you. And then here's our second motivation to humility in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So, so Peter, I think, is suggesting a posture of, of humble reliance on the Lord that is the opposite of self-sufficient self-reliance. He, he's urging us to rely on the Lord, to make our requests known to him. God-reliant prayer will increase our humility. Knowing that God cares for us will humble us. So in this passage, Peter gives instructions for pastors in verses 1 through 4, and then he gives instructions for the congregation in verses 5 through 7. And then, and then he sort of steps back and, and unites the whole. But he's basically said one thing to the churches. Uh, humbly submit yourself to the leadership of the pastors that God gives you. And he's really just said one thing to the pastors, too. Lay down your life for the church. And, and when you ponder those things, it's, it's similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives. Give your lives for them. Wives, embrace their leadership. So humbly submit to them. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of similarity, I think, in, in the exhortation. And then finally, in verses, no, not finally, thirdly, in verses 8 and 9, Peter addresses everybody on resisting the devil. So he's called the elders to lay down their lives, the church humbly to submit, and now he equips us to stand against Satan. He says in verse 8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are not safe. Our enemy is powerful, and he is on the prowl. Richard Baxter addressed pastors in this way. He said, 
And this is a, quote, a long quotation. He said, take heed to yourselves because the tempter will make his first and sharpest onset upon you. If you will be the leaders against him, he will spare you no, no further than God restrains him. He bears the greatest malice against you that are engaged to do him the greatest mischief. As he hates Christ more than any of us, because he is the general of the field and the captain of our salvation and does more than all the world besides against the kingdom of darkness, so does he take note of the leaders under Christ more than the common soldiers. He knows what a rout he may make among the rest if the leaders fall before their eyes. He has long tried this way of fighting, smiting the shepherds that he may scatter the flock, and so great has been his success that he will follow it on as far as he is able. Take heed, therefore, for the enemy has his special eye on you. You will have his most subtle insinuations and incessant solicitations and violent assaults. As wise and learned as you are, take heed to yourselves, lest he overwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you and a nimbler disputant. He will play the juggler with you undiscerned and cheat you of your faith or innocence, and you will not know that you have lost it. And when he ruins you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. What a conquest he will think he has if he can make a minister lazy and unfaithful and then glory over the Lord Jesus himself and say, this is your champion. We must heed the apostle Peter. We must be sober-minded, be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire. Peter is continuing to give instructions on this in verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's our there's our recipe for resisting Satan. First, firmly believe that God would have you lay down your life for your people willingly rather than serve them out of compulsion. Let's back up in verse 2. Second, believe that eagerly serving the flock that God gives you will be more rewarding than any money you could use them to acquire. It will be more rewarding to receive that crown of glory. Third, Trusting that as you typify Jesus to them, rather than lording it over them, your influence will grow, and they will esteem you more highly than they would if you demanded to be treated like royalty. And then lastly, we have to believe. We have to believe that the unfading crown of glory is worth laying down our lives. But really, we all know it's not about the crowns, is it? In any soldier that's awarded the Medal of Honor, what he's going to say is, I didn't do this to win some award. He's going to say, I did this for the love of my country. I did this for the love of the soldiers that fight with me. And that's what animates us, isn't it? It's the love of the Lord and the love for God's people that drives us onward. So this is what Peter means for us as a congregation and for you, Garrett, as he calls you to, to pastor and to resist the devil firm in the faith. We are not alone. 
These sufferings are being completed by our brotherhood throughout the world. We see there at the end of verse 9. As lonely as we may feel at times, no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. So let's, let's resist the devil. Let's take up Christ-likeness. Let's pursue and embrace and clothe ourselves with humility and fight the good fight of the faith. And there will be an end to the pain, as we have in the promise and the doxology in verses 10 and 11. Peter writes that the outcome of our suffering will be like the outcome of the suffering of Jesus himself. He says there in verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon described his ministry using imagery borrowed from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And Garrett, this is what we are commissioning and ordaining you to do. Spurgeon said, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven, and I have with me at the present time dear old Father Honest. I am glad he is still alive and active, and there is Christiana, and there are her children. It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads, and lead on the timid and trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel to the river's edge. How many we have had to part with there. I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. Let's pray. Who is adequate for these things, Father? Certainly none of us. And so we praise you and thank you that your spirit makes us adequate as ministers of the new covenant. And Lord, we thank you that you will do this for Garrett Milner and for Lee as they continue in your service. Father, we commit them to your care. We pray that you would seal your word to their hearts. We pray that they would many times over and over experience the joy of seeing seeds that they cast sprout up into new life. Lord, we pray that you would make them faithful to replenish their stock of seed through personal Bible study. We pray that you would make them faithful to water those seeds that have been planted and to work the ground and to pray to you that you would give the growth. And Lord, we ask that you would also make us fruitful here. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
the, the word has been sown and it is being watered, but you are the one who gives the growth. Jesus is the foundation. And we pray, Lord, that you'd make us faithful as we build on it, this temple of the Holy Spirit. Help us to think carefully about how we're to build and help us to use those materials that will survive the flames of judgment. So, Lord, we ask for your grace, and we pray that you would bless us now. We pray particularly for Garrett and Lee, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.